Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome to our study of St. John Chrysostom's homilies on marriage and family life. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, today we shift gears, and we obviously start a new homily that can be found on page 65 in your Chrysostom text. This homily is based on uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and I'm just going to read that from the ESV, even though three of the verses are quoted directly here. I'll, I'll just, for the sake of it, uh, quote here now Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 from the English Standard Version. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, we'll notice again how the Lord is the center of these relationships according to St. Paul. So, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's the same idea we've seen before in, in marriage and we've commented on in the three different domestic spheres. Marriage, parents and children, and then slaves and masters. Uh, but each of this obedience and duty are rendered unto the Lord, not unto the human beings as such. And so you can see that language here in St. Paul's treatment of children and parents. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now, obviously quoting um, from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And then Paul points out parenthetically, this is the first commandment with a promise. If you do X you will receive why. And here's just, you know, one of many examples we could point to in the, in the Scripture's teaching that um, obedience to the commandments has temporal and eternal blessings and benefits attached. Um, in this case, the promise is that it may go well with you and that you may live it long in the land. Interesting that Paul doesn't say, hey, that was explicit to the Old Testament people. That only counts to the people who are alive in that generation. That only counts to the people who are under the Old Covenant. But St. Paul brings this forward to the people who are under the New Covenant. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the, command with, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. I mean, how does Paul view that commandment as completely operative in the church? When the, the promise included. Okay, now he pivots and said, says, fathers. Okay, and certainly this is the head of the household Paul's uh, day and age, Paul's time isn't the same as ours. Um, so what's written here? I mean, would this apply to like a single mother? Yeah, I think so. Um, does this apply to parents in general? Yeah, I think so. So do the editors of the ESV since they titled this summary, Children and Parents. Um, par fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What does that mean? Never make your kids mad? No, that's a, <laughs> that's a recipe for, <laughs> for disaster. Yeah. No, provoking them to anger is, is, is what? I mean, don't, don't go out of your way to make their lives miserable. <laughs> don't, don't treat them 
as if they were your slaves rather than your children, that kind of thing, or um, people, to, people since they're under your thumb and under your authority, you can simply uh, mistreat or exploit or abuse. All of those things would be very, very foreign to the scriptural understanding of father. Again, well, and we're going to get into this with Chrysostom, of course, but what is, what is fatherhood, what is fatherhood uh, named after? God the Father. And so earthly fathers are to emulate God the Father. And so, um, you know, here, here the advice, do not provoke your children to anger, but rather bring them up in the discipline. Okay, and there, that clarifies that, hey, just because your kids are angry at you doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Obviously, if you discipline them correctly and in the discipline of the Lord, according to His Word, um, you are, uh, they, they may from time to time become angry with you, and that's okay. So bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, um, you know, the way that the Lord disciplines us, discipline them, you're there. And, and here you can see to that theology that, we're, that the parents are God's masks, they're in the office of God unto their children. And uh, so everything that God does unto us, do unto your children, particularly the discipline and instruction. So teaching them the, the word of the Lord, the truth of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, all of the above. All right, that's, um, that's a very short section on children and parents. Uh, and that is the section that Chrysostom is going to preach this shorter homily on. Before we move on, are there any questions native to uh, the, the text as read? Or anything I made less clear than it was before? Yes, sir. When do children ever stop becoming children? Is there a cutoff? Good question. Yeah, when did children ever stop becoming children? <laughs> so, interestingly, the, the texts that are often cited by um, proponents of, of free will and decision theology, I'll talk about age of accountability in this kind of text, there are some texts that can, that can be found in the Old Testament scriptures to support this idea, but they have nothing to do with theology proper. They rather have to do with the civil sphere. It's very much analogous to how we say, hey, when you turn 18, you're an adult, you know, or, or you can, uh, you know, you, you, turn, you turn 16, I th is it still 16, or have we changed it to like 42 now, when you can drive, when you can get your license? <laughs> okay, so it's, uh, so, so it's 16, you know, and what magically changes at 16? I mean, nothing, nothing. But we have, as a society, said, this is the, this is the age at which you can be entrusted with this, uh, you know, driving around a 2,000-pound vehicle. Okay. Um, and then at 18, we've said this is the age at which you can exercise your right to vote. Now they're trying to change that again, aren't they, to yeah. like seven years old or something. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Anyway, um, so yeah, they're trying to lower the voting age, of course. What could be wrong with that? Obviously, the younger a person is, the more life experience and intelligence they have, maturity. So, um, and then 21 for drinking, 21 for drinking. It used to be 25 for renting a car. I don't know if it still is. So there's these, there's these things that, you know, whether it's, whether it's society as a whole or industry as a whole has said, hey, this is, this is the, the time in which we're going to make you 
accountable. You know, prior to 18, you get you're in some serious crime, you get charged as a minor. After 18, you get charged as an adult. You know, you irrespective of where the individual himself or herself is, it's just hey, these are the categories. And you can see that that um, that civil understanding of a kind of age of accountability in the in the Old Testament nation state of Israel exists. Again, civil sphere, not that you somehow become accountable and can make a decision for Jesus or something like that. I mean, that's to confuse the two kingdoms and to misuse the scriptures. Okay, but as we said then, um, here in America we land in a weird position because at a certain point in time you want and hope your kiddos move out, kind of start life on their own whether they're married or not, and most frequently they're not. You know, at 18, I, the general expect. I don't know if it's an ex expectancy anymore, but it is a hope still. When your kids, by the time your kids turn 18, they're either in college or vocational school or starting their career, starting their life. Um, but what this does, I think, is creates for us this artificial sense of, okay, well, now they're independent. In a sense, in a sense, but it's in a legal sense, in a civil sense, in a, in a left-hand kingdom social sense, um, have we come to this agreement. But organically, what's happening, and I think that that's the call of the scriptures over and against our age, is organically what's happening is just because they, they leave your house doesn't mean they've actually left your house. Your children, your children remain, I, and I think that this is true biblically, theologically. I'm willing to be challenged and you know, disproven on this point, but this is, this is my reading on it, and I'm not, certainly not alone. Um, but, but that your children remain, it, your children, and, and the way we would think of as dependents, okay, part of your household until they're married. So, so to, to recontextualize our language and thinking in these terms, you don't become an adult until you're married. That is, until you have your own family, until you become a husband or wife, uh, and then, God willing, a father and mother after that. that that's when organically you become um, the head of your own household. And let's just define adult as head of your own household here. Um, so, so that would be a more theological answer to your question. Now, does that mean that, you know, if your son goes and gets married and now he and, and the two have become one flesh and he has his own household and now he's an adult that he ceases to be your child. Well, no, he still honor, owes you that honor. And, um, but at the same time, he's not under you in the same way as he was before. Before he was, in fact, a product of your marriage and his, relationship, his primary relationship was to you under your marriage uh, uh, as your child. And now that's changed because now he is a husband and, uh, you know, and, and um, God willing, and again, in, in the predominant course, is soon to be a father himself. And so, so that identity kind of changes. So I hope I gave a more theological answer to that question, um, and at least some more data for us to reflect on when we consider what is an adult, right? Of course, we in our society, too, have something that it's a little bit of a global anomaly and uh, even today I think I think and certainly a historical anomaly and that's that you know we're so mobile that uh, our adult children now I'm speaking as an American our, our adult children just 
I mean, they move across the nation, wherever the school is or the job is. And it's not, I, I mean, it's even kind of weird that you would like, that you would not have like this family domicile where everybody is, or, or you know, a, a, what would be as strange it is, as alien as to us in our way of thinking, it would sort of be like, well, these three or four houses in the neighborhood. I mean, that would be much more natural and we would all kind of be together, even though the houses might be separate, we'd all be kind of together in this, this larger domicile. Um, that's completely alien to our culture. I mean, if, if you're blessed to have your children live close to you, they're probably living in the next city over. <laughs> you know, if they're living in the same city, but on the other end. Uh, and, then, and then increasingly today, they're living in some other part of the nation or world entirely. So these are the challenges we have, and it fragments the family, doesn't it? And that's, that fra it adds up, and then when you multiply that out, it's a fragmented culture. And it's a, so many of the things that are the basis for society and culture are these family ties and family mores, where legislation doesn't have to come from the government. Legislation, if you will, comes from these social units, the family unit and the social units, um, are, which are, you just don't do that. And if you do that, you're going to have your brother and your dad and your uncle and your grandpa and everybody else there telling you, hey, what are you doing? It's not how we do things. <laughs> Sadly, this is lost in Western culture. And so now we're relying more and more on government, and that's an abject failure, of course. So, yes, sir. Yeah, off on a tangent already. <laughs> yeah. I've always been very interested in the blessing of the oldest son. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, in the Old Testament, when the, the, uh, oh, what's, me? the patriarch. Yeah, the patriarch. What? What's the hairy guy that got the blessing from his? Esau, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Esau was supposed to get the blessing. Yeah. Jacob yeah. got a trick. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. But it was very important back then. And how important is it today for fathers, and this kind of relates to your question, Barry, to bless the children, male and female, not in a formal blessing mm -hmm. setting, but to just, you know, hey, I'm on your side. And I, mm -hmm. You know, the family blessing is going to be passed down. I don't know. Is that important today? Or? It's a great question. The question for those, those online, um, you know, this, this biblical thing we see, at least in the Old Testament, of, of fathers blessing their sons and uh, with, with particular emphasis on the oldest son, um, how important is that? And I wish I knew more about it uh, to give a more intelligent and articulate comment. Um, even if there isn't some sort of formal rite or ritual, as you were saying, just the idea of uh, this connectivity is, v is very important and very underemphasized. This generational connectivity that um, you are my son and everything that I have is yours <laughs> and it and organically flows. And, and what, I'm, what I'm bequeathing to you isn't merely my material goods but the legacy of our family and, uh, and the legacy of, of our family as a Christian family and who we are and our, and our identity in, in God, in Christ Jesus, um, and then how that translates to how we live and act and conduct ourselves in this world, yeah. And I think, I think sort of where that's, we've tried to do that is, uh, and many, many Christians and their wills 
and their, you know, in their last will and testament, will put some sort of statement of faith that, hey, the most important thing I'm handing down to you is my Christianity. I mean, I think that that's a, I think that that's a fine gesture and a good thing. Hopefully, it's more organic than that, uh, yeah. because that's not likely to do anything in and of itself, right? Yeah, that'd be a poor substitute to just not do anything and then tack that on and know that that's going to have some impact. Um, Right. Right. Yeah, the modeling and living out um, from father to son is is vastly important. Vastly important. The, and there are all kinds of statistics you can go and look up too. Like the. And I know you can only go so far with statistics. Don't get me wrong. But the presence of the father in the family and the presence of the father in taking the family to church is a huge determinant, huge determinant in um, whether or not the kids go to church and take their families to church. Yeah, it's just huge. I mean, it's not even saying that the, that the father's necessarily all that engaged, just is, does he view it as something important enough for he himself to be there? And if so, that resonates with the children deeply. And I think that that applies everywhere. You know, the, the, so much of what we do as fathers, of course, we pass on knowledge and um, the instruction and discipline of the Lord, as St. Paul says. But a, a good deal of that is done without words. It's done in actions. Yeah. And we express our faith. And, um, you know, it's the, it's the language of the faith and discussion of God and Christ and prayer and, and life as Christians. Is that discussed in the household naturally, organically? Or is that... Uh, or is that something we don't do? We only do on Sundays. I think that can make a huge impact too. Because I think, I think kids want to see that this faith is livable. And that this, this faith you know, is there when the rubber hits the road. And, and has answers to life's questions. And um, that, that not everything the world is telling you is true is, is in fact true. And uh, you, need to, you need to think critically about that. And hey, you know what? While you're at it, go ahead and think critically about Christianity too. And, and think critically about theology. Think critically about everything. Um, and and know that know that that's what your parents are doing, and we nonetheless have landed on the side of of Christ, and we hope you do too. You know that kind of thing. The idea of um, raising our kids in some sort of neutrality so that they can make their own spiritual decisions is utterly foolish. Utterly foolish. I mean, the parallel to that is like, I'm not going to feed my my newborn baby until he asks. Yeah, <laughs> or. Or, I want my kid to eat vegetables and exercise, but he, he is not assenting of his own free will to this, so I'm going to just say, okay, go ahead and have another Snickers bar and play some more video games. No! I mean, as parents, we always do what's right for our children, e before they ask for it, A, and B, even when it's contrary to their wills. <laughs> That's where parental overrule comes in, and we say, no, I'm overruling you for your own good. Whether you thank me later or not doesn't matter, <laughs> but it, this is for your good. Um, you probably will thank me later. Uh, but yeah, that's, so that has its parallels in our religious life, too. You know, we, we bring our kids to church whether they want to go or not. We, uh, we bring our, our preteens and our teens to church, even if they're kicking and screaming and grumbling and grumping and it's a wrestle. Who cares? You go there. And... Um, Parents, too, need to have this rule, 100% Christian parents. Hey, if you're under my roof, we're going to church. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're visiting from out of town uh, with your family? Great. You're staying under my roof? Great. But we're going to church on Sunday because that's, uh, that's what happens when you stay, you know. No, you don't, you don't have to commute. 
you know, I don't even, I'm not going to sit there and police you whether you sing the hymns or not, <laughs> but you have to go. Yeah, that's great. I mean, these are the rules that are the rules of, of my household. Um, take it or leave it. We serve the Lord here. We love you. We love the Lord. We just love the Lord more than you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I'm sorry for this. We've, uh, we've digressed off to one side and, and the other. I hope it's been fruitful. It's been fun for me to think through with you all and think dynamically about these things. Okay, on to uh, page 65. Chrysostom's uh, homily 21 on Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Here he quotes uh, 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Here Chrysostom. St. Paul develops his theme in an orderly fashion. He has spoken first concerning the husband, then the wife, who is second in authority. Now he proceeds to the next rank, namely the children. The husband is the head of the wife, and husband and wife together have authority over the children. Listen to what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is the first commandment with a promise. He will not speak here about Christ, or other lofty subjects, but will direct his words to young minds. That is also why this passage is very short, since children have a short span of attention. Nor does he speak here about the kingdom to come, since children would not be able to understand, but he tells what a child's soul wants to hear most, how to have a long life. If anyone wonders why he doesn't speak about the kingdom of God, but simply gives them the Old Testament commandment, it is because he addresses the children on their own level, and because he is well aware that if husband and wife order their lives according to God's law, their children will also submit willingly to the same law. Okay, and again, this is, I'll just point this out for those of us who have sort of spent our days in, in the American Lutheran ghetto. This is the way the historic church views the law. This is the way everybody views the law. This is the way the Lutheran reformers themselves viewed the law, as the law is the ordering principle of the Christian life. I mean, we can't live without the gospel. We can't live without the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. But that forgiveness of sins, while it certainly negates the accusation and condemnation of the law, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it doesn't negate the content of the law or the formative aspect of the law for us as Christians. And here... I mean, you can see Chrysostom saying this, but we could turn to any church father. We could turn to Luther or Chemnitz or uh, Gerhard and see the exact same thing. Uh, the law is simply normative. I, all the proof you need for this is what's the very first thing that Luther lays down um, in his catechism? The Ten Commandments. Yeah, the law. And he does so not in a not in an accusation only. So look, these are all the things that condemn you and the reason why you need Christ. That's not the rhetoric of the meanings of the Ten Commandments at all. It's... Uh, you, this commandment enjoins you to do X and not do Y. That's the, so, so it is an expression of God's will for our lives. Okay, so I just simply point that, way out by, uh, point that out by way of caveat. Chrysostom continues, The most difficult element in any undertaking is to lay a good, strong foundation based on sound principles. Anything begun this way will easily proceed to the proper conclusion. Children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord. That is to say, in accordance with the Lord. 
for so has God commanded you. What if my parents command me to do things that are wrong, you might ask? Well, even when a parent does wicked things himself, he usually doesn't force his children to imitate him. However, St. Paul has left us a provision in this case by saying, Obey your parents in the Lord. That is, whenever they tell you to do what is pleasing to God. So if your father is an unbeliever or a heretic and demands that you follow him, you ought not to obey because what he commands is not in the Lord. All right, so there too we see that this governing theme runs through all the vocations. Um, while we are under the authority of another, whether that's a right-hand kingdom authority, a left-hand kingdom authority, or a familial authority like a father, um, that authority meets its bounds if uh, the person in authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands. Then we must obey God and not Man, And so that, that runs as a golden thread through all our vocational relationships, um, all our relationships, period, to authority, is we'll do what you say as long as, um, as, long as it doesn't contradict what God says. That's a simple way of putting it, and maybe we'll just leave it there. <clears throat> Chrysostom continues, Now, why does St. Paul say that this commandment is the first to be joined with a promise? Notice that the other commandments, such as thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not commit adultery, have no reward attached to them, since God gave these commandments to make us avoid evil things. But the commandment to honor our parents concerns something good, so a reward is promised for those who keep it. See what an admirable foundation St. Paul lays for a virtuous life, honor and respect for one's parents. This is the first good practice commanded us in the scriptures, because before all others, except God, our parents are the authors of our life, and they deserve to be the first ones to receive the fruits of our good deeds. Only after we honor our parents can we do anything good for the rest of mankind. If a man does not honor his parents, he will never treat other people with kindness. And this section, the latter half of this paragraph, could just as easily have been taken right out of the large catechism. Luther speaks in exactly this way, that amongst our, the relationships we have amongst our neighbors, our fellow human beings, there is no higher than that which we have uh, to our parents, and they are due all, all honor. Um, yeah. Before all others except God, our parents are the authors of our life. Yeah. And in that respect, you can see how the office of parent is an, is an office of God. I mean, that God is the one who brings life through the parents. He's the one that brings clothing, shoes, house, home, all the other stuff through the parents. Um, so all the gifts that the children receive come from God through the parents. And so the parents are in the office of God, in the stead of God, by the command of God, conducting their business. So that's a, that's a high and honorable calling, and we owe that uh, duty of, of good response. Here in this, uh, the fourth commandment. <clears throat> yeah, and then this last line is a bit of a zinger, isn't it? If a man does not honor his parents, he will never treat other people with kindness. Ha, I love that. I love that. And I, and I love that. You know, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to this at the very end 
Chrysostom, or toward the very end, how to choose a wife. And um, I, I said, kind of rather off the cuff in one of my classes, but I still hold to it, certainly, um, in looking for a future spouse, pay attention to how they treat their parents. This would be a great proof text for that point. If a man does not honor his parents, he will never treat other people with kindness. Yeah, that includes you as the spouse. All right, well, I hope that this is all relatively basic, um, especially given that it, it's dependent upon the same framework we've been looking at for the past few weeks, simply applied to parents and children. New paragraph on the bottom of 66. He has given the children the most important advice, so he continues by saying to the fathers, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. He does not say, love them. He would regard such a commandment as superfluous, trusting that nature will draw even unwilling parents to love their children. Of course, that's generally true, except in the sickest of cases. And, um, you know, that's also the reason, it's also the reason why God makes them cute, right? <laughs> what does he say? Do not provoke your children to anger, as many by disinheriting and disowning them, or by overburdening them, as if they were slaves and not free. All right, so there's another a, a, a facet I had, or aspect I had said, um, essentially I was trying to say, by not overburdening them, or as if they were slaves and not free. And then here's another one, you know, don't disinherit or disown them, don't kick them out of the household. So what would be under that umbrella? Overly harsh with your children. But most importantly, he shows, and again the he here is St. Paul, he shows that the father as the head and source of authority in the family is responsible for leading his children to obedience as the wife must submit to her husband, and the husband must make himself worthy of her obedience by the power of love. Likewise, he must also bring his children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And I would simply pause here. You know, just as, when viewed from the language of duty, you know, and, and the perspective of duty, which is very, very helpful for us, because it removes us from our selfishness, our feelings, and, and this kind of thing, and God lays out our duty. And thus we can accomplish our vocations by aspiring to please Him. And that's profoundly freeing, psychologically freeing, emotionally freeing, profoundly freeing to view life that way. Um, here, here's kind of the other side of the coin, and that is that ideally, you know, a husband is, is um, making himself worthy of obedience by his love. And this is also a, has a profound parallel in parenting, doesn't it? I mean, those of you who are parents know I'm preaching to the choir here. But just disciplining your kids as a matter of strength or power or authority or raising your voice or, you know, threatening them that, hey, you're going to sit on the, you know, sit on the couch or sit on the stairs. You're going to be in timeout for, <laughs> you know, the next hour <laughs> or something draconian. Um, you know, and... While there, while there may be a place and time for harsher punishments like that, that's, you know that the, the parental relationship is really based on love. And you know that, um, particularly when they're, when they're younger, but I think it, par it parallels even as they get a little older um, and aren't fully rebellious yet. 
that, that what really matters is the relationship you have with them and if they know you love them or not. If that relationship is, is going well and is healthy and is close and you tell them, do this, they do it. Because they love you and they respect you. And, and that's based on, I mean, it's parallel to we love because he first loved us. They, you know, the children love because they know the parents love because dad's taking the time to listen to me or play with me or engage with me. I know that mom and dad love me and therefore it's much harder for me to say no or act in a disobedient way. And that's really the root of parenting. In fact, I've kind of recognized this as a parent. Again, your mileage may vary. My children are young, so subject to change. But I've noticed this with my children, that if they start being superficially disobedient, like if I say, hey, do this, and you know it doesn't get done, or I find myself repeating myself like two or three times, if I, instead of just pushing on the discipline harder, if I, which there is a time and place for that, but if I step back and say, you know, this is, this is an emotional connectivity issue. If I take the time to relate to them, I bet that this will get fixed. So if I schedule some play time or some game time or something like this and some time to read with them, you know, some time to emotionally connect, and then I go back to that and say, hey, do this. I notice that the disobedience decreases. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a way in which, yes, authority should be uh, enforced, you know, through, through force of will, force of relationship. Um, there is a time and a place for that, but there's also a time and a place for that to be earned through love, or rather gained through love. So this perspective that, um, that Chrysostom brings up, a wife submits to her husband, and the husband um, makes himself worthy of her obedience. That has its parallel in, the, in parents and children. You know, we want to love our children as parents so that, so that they feel we are worthy of their obedience. That would be the goal from the parental side of things. Okay, so um, just picking up where we left off with Chrysostom, page 67. It looks like about 3, 6, 9, um, 11 lines down from the top. Concern for spiritual things will unite the family. Do you want your child to be obedient? Then from the beginning, bring him up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Don't think that it isn't necessary for a child to listen to the scriptures. The first thing he will hear from them will be, honor your father and your mother. And immediately, you will begin to reap your reward. Don't say, Bible reading is for monks. <laughs> what would he say today? Bible reading is for pastors. Now, don't say Bible reading is for monks. Am I turning my child into a monk? No. It isn't necessary for him to be a monk. Make him into a Christian. Why are you afraid of something so good? It is necessary for everyone to know scriptural teachings, and this is especially true for children. Um, just put your finger there so we can pause. Uh, okay, so the, the textbook for this, and it has been the textbook for this, I think, since the earliest days in one way, shape, or form, is the Catechism. And of course, we're blessed to have the small Catechism of the Reformation, and what a, what a treasure that is to, in one way, shape, or form, put in front of your kids. And here, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the basic text, not so much the meanings and explanations and all of this, but just the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, um, a verse or two about baptism, the verse on absolution from John 20, the words of institution. If you just put these things in front of your kids and to draw their attention to them, that's that's the essence of Christianity. That's the essence of the faith. And there's inexhaustible things there. 
Um, what, else, what else might we do? Uh, your mileage may vary. This isn't necessarily my imprimatur, but there is, there is a book out there called the Action Bible, and it's, it's the Bible in comic book form, and it is absolutely great. I just, we have this thing, we have this thing um, sitting out on the dining room table very frequently, and occasionally we take it o- a- a- away because, you know, sc- familiarity breeds contempt and scarcity breeds interest and that kind of thing, and so it, it comes and goes. But if I just leave this thing sitting out on the dining room table, the kids will come over and just read it for fun. Just interesting. And they're imbibing the stories and the frameworks and the familiarity. And it's not even so much like doctrinal at this point as it is just, you know, immersing yourself in the biblical world and the biblical themes. So that then when I talk to them about some specific story, they already have the background in mind. They can already tell me parts of the story. So as an aside, I would say, you know, for parents out there with with young children, younger children that that I'm talking to today, you know, use the catechism and, and use something like the Action Bible, or if your kids are younger, use a children's Bible. Um, these are wonderful tools that we have at our disposal. Okay, <clears throat> continuing with Chrysostom. Even at their age, they are exposed to all sorts of folly and bad examples from popular entertainments. <coughs> Disney, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but, <laughs> just teasing, just teasing. Uh, you know, obviously, everything from PBS to Disney to all the entertainment they see and watch is, uh, this day and age is indoctrinating them over and against a, a Christian worldview, um, by and large. So, and this is, I mean, imagine this. Chrysostom's writing these, these words in, <laughs> what is it, the 4th century? I mean, what would he say about today? Even at their age, they're ex- exposed to all sorts of folly and bad examples from popular entertainments. Our children need remedies for all these things. We are so concerned with our children's schooling, if only we were equally zealous in bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Yes, preach it, Chrysostom. <laughs> so many of our parents, and I know I'm a parent too, so I fall into this, but we want, our, we want to poise our kids for earthly success. Of what value is that? But so it's a value. 80 years worth of value. What about, what about preparing our children for eternal life and eternal success? Well, that's eternal. That's eternal. And um, quite frequently today I, do, I see parents who are very, very, uh, they're, willing to, they're willing to drive their kids all over the world to play these club games, you know, club soccer, club basketball, club golf, whatever it is, and spend copious amounts of money and time and effort doing all of this. And then, and then hey, hey do, you, do you think maybe just once a week to church is too much to ask? Yeah, well, that's the issue. And then on the academic side, it's you've got our kids in all this tutoring and prep school and private school and all, you know, spending bazillions because we want them to be, uh, what do we want them to be? rich, <laughs> I guess. Isn't that, I mean, you know, isn't that the point of it all? Isn't that the point of going out and getting a career and being successful and learning all of this so that, you'd, so that you'd be wealthy? Maybe parents in the back of their mind think at least I'd have them off my plate then. Or of course, if I've got a, a son who's a, a lawyer and a, one who's a doctor and one who's an accountant, I'll be pretty well set. Or if I run into any trouble, they'll take care of me. I don't know. These are the ways we think it. It's utterly foolish. So, so we'll, We'll go to these extremes to get our kids good at sports or good at athletics 
but what do we do for their eternal life? Uh, the bare minimum? Yeah. So this is a painful mirror for us to reflect in, perhaps, but a necessary mirror. And all the more in our modern world, where we have all of these things at our disposal. But listen again to the words of, of a church father from you know, 1,600 years ago. We are so concerned with our children's schooling, if only we were equally zealous in bringing them up in the disciplines and instructions of the Lord. And then we wonder why we reap such bitter fruit when we have raised our children to be insolent, licentious, impious, and vulgar. May this never happen. Instead, let us heed the blessed Paul's admonition to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let us give them a pattern to imitate. From their earliest years, let us teach them to study the Bible. He repeats this over and over again, you say. We are sick of listening to it. <laughs> Never will I stop doing my duty. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Why do you refuse to imitate the holy men and women of old? Tell me, especially you mothers. Think of Hannah's example. Look at what she did. She brought Samuel, her only son, to the temple when he was only an infant. Who among you would not rather have a son like Samuel than one who became king of the whole world 10,000 times over? Oh, isn't that true? Isn't that true? How many of us raise our children like, I would like to have a Hannah as a daughter or a Samuel as a son? What do we think? I'd rather have an Elon Musk as a son or a, you know, yeah, I don't know, a famous, a famous physicist for a daughter or something like this. This is indicting, this is indicting, but in such a good and healing way because it reorients us in our perspective. Who among you would not rather have a son like Samuel than one who became king of the whole world 10,000 times over? But it's impossible, you say, for my son ever to become as great as he. Why is it impossible? Because you don't really want it. <laughs> You won't entrust him to the one who is able to make him great. And who is that? God. Yeah, I think the temptation for us, especially younger parents, parents younger than, than I am, is we see the world going the way it is, and there's great fear in wanting our, Christians, our, our children to be too Christian, lest they stick out and become targets of persecution, have their lives ruined, and, and then perhaps... Uh, through that despair and demoralization, end up handing over the faith or apostatizing or something like that. There's great anxiety and fear. Like we want our children to be Christian, but not too Christian that it causes them to be, you know, troubles. Um, but that's the that's a faithless way of looking at it, isn't it? Even though that's kind of our we find ourselves default, you know, thinking thinking we want it to go well for our children. We have to be more faithful and more courageous and entrust not only ourselves to God, but entrust our children to God, that he'll watch out for them. And even if we're, if we're raising a, a Daniel or raising a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's okay. Even if we're ra raising um, you know, the, the women martyrs of the first century, that's okay. God will see them through. We, ought, we, we need not be afraid of making them too Christian or having them avoid persecution. We should just make them as thoroughly Christian as we can and entrust themselves to God. So Chrysostom's words you know, ring true here to us as parents. Um, because you don't really want it, 
<laughs> you won't entrust him, your son, to the one who is able to make him great. And who is that God? Hannah commended Samuel into the hands of God. The high priest Eli had no real ability to form him since he even failed to form his own children. It was the mother's faith and zeal that made everything possible. There's a shout out again to mothers and the power of moms to form faith in their children. You know, again, mothers are the are, I, I mean, biblically speaking, are the managers of the household and are the ones who are going to have just, I think, hour for hour the most time spent on the children and perhaps then the most potential for influence. And so, so this is a shout out to uh, Hannah and her role in Samuel's life and to all mothers in the role, of their, in, in, in the, um, the role they play in the lives of their children. You can even think biblically. Um, Timothy, it is, I think, who's, uh, who's brought up in the faith by his mother and grandmother, based on his name and the, and the fact that he's not circumcised and some of these other details, um, we can pretty, I think, pretty de definitively conjecture that his, uh, that his father was a pagan. So you can, even if you're a, even if you're in a non, you know, you're married to a non-Christian spouse, or your spouse isn't on board with all of this stuff, just look to, um, look to Timothy and see what uh, a grandma can create in a grandson, what a mom can create in her son. You know. It's incredible. Okay. It was a mother's faith and zeal that made everything possible. He was her first and only child. Again, Hannah and Samuel in view. She didn't know if she would ever have another, yet she never said, I'll wait until he grows up. He should have a taste of worldly pleasures, during his childhood at least. No, she rejected all these thoughts, for she had only one object, how from the very beginning she could dedicate her heart's delight to God. Be ashamed, you men, at the wisdom of this woman. She gave Samuel to God, and with God she left him, and thus her marriage was blessed more than ever, because her first concern was for spiritual things. She dedicated the first fruits of her womb to God, and obtained many more children in return. All of this can be read about in 1 Samuel. We recently went through it in one of our studies. She saw Samuel honored even in this life. If men return honor for honor, will not God do much more? He gives so much even to those who don't honor him at all. How long are we to be mere lumps of flesh? How long will we cling to the ground? Let everything take second place to our care for our children, our bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, could you even imagine what that would look like if everything else took second place to that? Ah, it'd be incredible. And then could you imagine what a generational shift that would be in the life of the church? I can tell you what, if that, if that happened on a generational basis, the church would stop shrinking here in the States. If from the beginning we teach them to love true wisdom, 
they will have greater wealth and glory than riches can provide. If a child learns a trade or is highly educated for a lucrative profession, all this is nothing compared to the art of detachment from riches. If you want to make your child rich, teach him this. Oh, and that reminds me too, you know, that's the other motivation that's rampant in our, uh, in our psychology as parents. It's not only that we maybe want our children to be rich, but that redounds upon us, doesn't it? Look how successful my progeny are. <laughs> that might even, as I think about it, that might even be the primary motivation, although it's a little veiled. But as parents, you, want, you, you somehow glory in, who, in the accomplishments of your children, or you want to glory in the accomplishments of your children, or something like, look how, look how intelligent my children are. I guess the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, does it? Like, kind of thing, you know. Um, but how foolish is that if we're viewing that in terms of secular achievement or worldly achievement instead of uh, achievement in true spirituality and, and growth as Christians, you know. What a, what a blessing it would be to, what a, what a much more profound blessing it would be to see daughters and sons with Christian families and everyone going to church, having that as your legacy. Is that a better legacy or is it better to have your, your sons and daughters all be doctors and PhDs and lawyers and wealthy business people but not go to church? Which would you prefer? Yeah, the former, I think. So I, I, th I mean that to, in the way of Chrysostom here to be inspiring towards those of us who are parents and those of us who are grandparents and have great influence on, on your children who have their own children now and the way they're parenting them and raising them, you know, to be able to say, to be able to say hey, envision, envision your future. Envision your children's future. What do you want? You want them to be very successful earthly people who don't have a connection with the church, do you want them to be churchly people who don't have a connection to the earth? <laughs> Puts it a little extreme, but um, I think the point comes across. He is truly rich who does not desire great possessions. Or, <laughs> here, criticism so good. He is truly rich who does not desire great possessions or surround himself with wealth, but who requires nothing. Yeah, true wealth is requiring nothing. That's, it's so well said. This is how to discipline and teach your child. This is the greatest riches. Don't worry about giving him an influential reputation for worldly wisdom, but ponder deeply how you can teach him to think lightly of this life's passing glories. Thus, he will become truly renowned and glorious. Yeah, that's the other thing. We're operating on a longer timeline here. It's not that wanting to be glorious is a wrong thing. It's just wanting to be glorious right now in this world is a premature and inglorious thing. The glory we aspire to is everlasting glory, everlasting legacy, and that's what we want for our children too. So viewed from this angle, it's a problem of timeline. Don't have your children be glorious in this life. That's too short-sighted. Have them be glorious in the next life for all eternity. All right, Chrysostom continues. Whether you are poor or rich, you can do this. 
These lessons are not learned from a skillful professor, but from divine revelation. They're available to you in the scriptures, we might say. Don't ask how he can enjoy a long life here, but how he can enjoy an infinite and eternal life in the age to come. Give him the great things, not the little things. Don't strive to make him a clever orator, but teach him to love true wisdom. He will not suffer if he lacks clever words, but if he lacks wisdom, all the rhetoric in the world can't help him. A pattern of life is what is needed, not empty speeches. Character, not cleverness. Deeds, not words. These things will secure the kingdom and bestow God's blessings. Don't sharpen his tongue, but purify his soul. I don't mean that worldly learning is worthless and to be ignored, but it should not be an exclusive preoccupation. Don't think that only monks need to learn the Bible. Children about to go out into the world stand in greater need of scriptural knowledge. A man who never travels by sea doesn't need to know how to equip a ship or where to find a pilot or a crew, but a sailor has to know all these things. The same applies to the monk and the man of this world. The monk lives an untroubled life in a calm harbor, removed from every storm, while the worldly man is always sailing the ocean, battling innumerable tempests. Very interesting section here. And especially, I think, because it sort of leans into this idea that, that of, of Luther is one of his critiques of monasticism. And I'm not sure that uh, Chrysostom holds this critique. Uh, but one of Luther's critiques of monasticism is that it, it takes you out of the battle, um, out of the callings of God. And uh, listen, if your children are going to be engaged in the callings of God, all the more important for them to be thoroughly grounded in God's word and gifts. Maybe that's, I'll just leave it there because I don't want to get too complicated off on that tangent. Okay, would you like me to give examples of men whose lives were patterns of virtue, even though they lived in the world? These days we have none to compare with them, even among the righteous. I am referring to the holy men of the Old Testament. How many of them had wives and children, yet were in no way inferior to the greatest ascetic? Now, unfortunately, because of the present distress, this is no longer the case. As the blessed Paul has said, reference to 1 Corinthians 7.26, Of which of them should I speak? Noah or Abraham? The sons of one or of the other? Or Joseph? What about the prophets, such as Moses or Isaiah? If you will permit me, I will speak of Abraham, who in many ways is the greatest example of them all. All right, place a finger there and let's pause for just a second. So, important to point out that um, there is great theological comfort to be taken uh, from the fact that all of the Old Testament saints were in fact sinners. And their sins are spelled out for us on the pages of Holy Writ so that we can know if God is gracious to them, he may certainly also be gracious to us. And again, that is a, a very profound and, ins and insightful and helpful way of looking at the scriptures. But 
let's not do that um, in such a way that we negate them as examples. If we do that, we cut ourselves off from the entire 2,000-year tradition of the church, which views the patriarchs in a positive light, despite their sins, highlighting rather their virtues and lifting them up as examples unto us all. And indeed, you don't have to go very far to think about the patriarchs and how they did incredibly faithful and incredibly virtuous things that make our faithfulness and virtues pale in comparison. I mean, Noah building an ark in the middle of a desert for crying out loud? When's the last time you and I have been called to do anything remotely like that or responded to even far lesser call, callings of, of God? So let's hold these men up for what they are and, and Abraham he's going to get into. So we want to have both those sides of the coin is really the end of my thesis here is, yeah, we want to view them as sinners forgiven by God and, and that we take great comfort in that, that we are sinners forgiven by God as well. We also want to see in them great virtues and things to emulate and consider in our own lives. All right, so he's, uh, he, Chrysostom speaking of Abraham. Was he not married? Did he not have children? Yes, but these things in themselves did not make him remarkable. He was rich, but it was not his riches that made him pleasing to God. Why is he called wonderful? Because of his hospitality, his detachment from riches, and his well-ordered life. What makes a lover of wisdom? Does he not care little for wealth or fame? Does he not rise above envy and other evil passions? Consider what a lover of true wisdom Abraham was. First, he was not attached to his homeland. God said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. This is Genesis 12. And immediately he went. He wasn't tied down to his house, or he never would have left it, or his friends, or anything else, least of all money and fame. When he had defeated the four kings and was invited to take the spoil, he refused it, reference to Genesis 14. All these great men looked at this present life as nothing. They did not thirst for riches or other earthly attachments. Tell me, which trees are best? Do we not pre prefer those that are inwardly strong and are not injured by rainstorms or hail or gusts of wind or by any sort of harsh weather, but stand exposed to them, all without fences or garden to protect them. He who truly loves wisdom is like this, and his riches we have already described. He has nothing, yet has everything. He has everything, yet has nothing. A fence does not provide internal strength, nor is a wall a natural support. They provide only artificial protection. What is a strong body? Is it not one that is healthy, whether hungry or surfeited, cold or warm? Or is it something that is dependent on restaurants, tailors, merchants, and physicians for help? The truly rich man, the true lover of wisdom, needs none of these things. And that is why the blessed apostle admonishes us to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't surround them with the external safeguards of wealth and fame. For when these fail, and they will fail, our children will stand naked and defenseless, having gained no profit from their former prosperity 
but only injury, since when those artificial protections that shielded them from the winds are removed, they will be blown to the ground in a moment. In the back of my mind, and you may have some other biblical figure in mind that fits even better, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of Joseph. Do you remember how, how Joseph went from a, a point of privilege, being the favored son, and, uh, and given his, his, nice, his nice coat, and then finding himself all the way down in a pit, sold into slavery, and going into slavery at the lowest of the low, and yet being such a good and faithful slave in his vocation that he rises up in Potiphar's house only to be falsely accused. But think, think also of his strength of character, you know, to be willing to risk everything to do the right thing and, and to say no to Potiphar's wife, to be falsely accused and then thrown in jail. All the way back down he goes, and then all the way up he goes again. And, and so you can see that Joseph is a truly rich man. He you know, he had everything, lost it all, had everything again, lost it all, had everything again, and doesn't care, remains faithful to God. And, and what, a, what a beautiful and remarkable model of, of what Chrysostom is here saying Joseph is. So we want to give this internal strength, this reliance on God, this faithfulness to God, this internal strength to our children, um, so that when all other strengths and circumstances in lives fail and change and give way, uh, like a tree, Firmly rooted into the ground, they remain unshaken. So. All right, next week we will, uh, God willing, we will finish this homily. We only have a, about a page left. And then we will get into uh, the homily on Colossians 4.18. The Lord be with you.